We now know, according to human rights group Safeguard Defenders, they're based in Spain, the Chinese government, led by the Communist Party, has at least one secret police station right here in Vancouver. There may, in fact, be more than one, and there certainly is more than one in this country. Well, yesterday on the Jazz Joe Hall Show, Jazz spoke with Jeremy Nuttall, a Vancouver-based investigative reporter with the Tor Star, about what we learned from this report that came out from Safeguard Defenders and the location of that police station in Vancouver. Yeah, this report says there is one, but it can't. It can't. It doesn't pinpoint the exact address. Um, so Safeguard Defenders sort of gleans a lot of this information from uh, public, publicly available documents, many attributed to the, the Chinese government. And through that process, they have uh, deciphered that there is um, a police station in Vancouver uh, being operated by the Wenzhou uh, police authorities uh, on some level. They're not sure the exact address. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's a few guesses that I think some people could hazard, but uh, no, no proof of where it actually is yet. And another, um, another police station... They don't know the, the location, even the province that it's in. Well, Richard Curland is an immigration lawyer and a policy analyst and, uh, and knows all things and all issues uh, related to immigration and some of the tensions when it comes to the Chinese government. We're lucky to have him with us this morning. Richard, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, you know, when they talk about a police station, I I mean, that really is a great little headline, a Chinese police station in Vancouver. What is it that they're getting at? Well, uh, I think it's a cry for public attention uh, in order to get resources allocated to our public security institutions like CSIS, like RCMP, uh, like a national security integrated uh, level of police uh, liaison at the VPD. So, yes, this kind of thing has happened, is happening, and likely will happen in the future, but there's no reason why we have to make it easy for them. Well, yes, and uh, when we're talking about uh, a police station, it's more what we're talking about, I guess, here is uh, the gathering of intel um, mm. and uh, having that go back to a foreign government. I guess that's mm. really the scare, isn't it? And this report kind of just highlights the fact, and it should be, we should be really open about this, they've known that this so-called police station in Vancouver has been here since 2016, but probably goes back a lot further than that, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry to laugh, but yeah. And that's because uh, we have seen in the immigration caseload individuals physically present right here in British Columbia from that community who have complained and testified, provided affidavits to the effect that the uh, government of China directly and indirectly coerce uh, Canadian relatives on Canadian soil into convincing a Chinese citizen to go back and face the music uh, uh, in the mainland. And uh, there's a wide spectrum. Uh, we've seen, if you like, the uh, history machine. Remember Mr. Lai and his ilk? Oh, yeah. So he's here for like a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, uh, there have been uh, refugee claimants on Canadian soil. Uh, the issue there is, uh, for, for Beijing, uh, these individuals may have taken money illicitly out of China. And the game is... Uh, uh, cultural to China. 
remember, it's a different society. It does not share our Western democratic values. It's more akin to old village uh, mentality uh, during the European Middle Ages, where a family member uh, may bring into disrepute the entire family. And punishment is not meted out to that individual, but to the entire family. The closest we've seen uh, over the past decades was during the rule of Stalin, when in the former Soviet Union, they used to burn down an entire village to catch uh, a couple guilty guys. That's their system. But there's no reason why we have to make it easy for them to uh, operationally uh, allow this to happen. Uh, we have tools. Uh, they, we can place many of these individuals in electronic goldfish bowls and monitor who they communicate with, who communicates with them. Do we want to get hands-on, direct in their face? Not the best idea, <laughs> because well, money and time. Exactly. And I guess it's two different priorities, as I understand you laying it out. Uh, for perhaps the Chinese government, it is a saving face. And uh, for us, is there anything that we should worry about? I mean, is Canada the the harborer of secret information and uh, secrets and this type of thing that the Chinese government just needs to get their hands on? Or or is that just kind of no? It's not, um, hmm, it's not a nuke. It's more of a sniper shot. So the Chinese government is interested in individuals, not the mass surveillance of our Canadian society, at least not yet. But if you're going to point a finger, I would point it squarely at the city of Richmond. They, they did something I simply do not comprehend. They implemented a mirror mass surveillance system on the road network installing over 100 cameras to capture who's on our roads uh, a, a couple years ago. And that information is open to the highest bidder in the private sector. So let me walk you through this. I mean, Yeah, this is the, interesting. Let's go through the, this. The deal is that if, if Richmond is known to have a, a rather significant proportion of uh, uh, Canadian citizens, permanent residents uh, from the mainland, and what better tool uh, for Beijing to use in intelligence than to gather information picked up by the city of Richmond uh, regarding the travelers on Richmond roads. You can't get to the airport without hitting this net. You can't cut across from region to region by traversing uh, uh, Richmond without, you know, smiling into the camera. And what are they thinking? Richmond says, oh, it's to provide uh, information in case there's a car accident. So hopefully the province will step in, re-examine how we allowed a mass surveillance system to be installed on Canadian soil in greater Vancouver, and uh, who's been buying this information off the city of Richmond? I, I, I don't know, and given the intrusive nature of Beijing intervention on Canadian soil, including quote-unquote secret police stations, you just can't let stuff like this ride. We have an obligation to protect, protect our Canadian citizens, our permanent residents who have connections to the mainland. And when I drive my car through Richmond, I don't want to be on camera.
There's no reason for that. So uh, it's I don't get it. Uh, in addition, there has got to be perhaps a designated point of communication for individuals who feel they have information regarding uh, a, a police station or other uh, storefront that has been providing and continues to provide um, operational support for uh, Chinese government activities on Canadian soil. Like I say, you can either make it easy, roll over, ignore it, and hope it goes away, or <laughs> do something. Fascinating story. We've been talking with Richard Curland about uh these Chinese police stations and surveillance and uh, possibly what we can be doing. Now, Richard, as an immigration lawyer and a policy analyst, uh, more so on the policy side, could I ask you this question? Hmm. You outlined uh, something that I consider a little uh, frightening, the fact that uh, Richmond can gather uh, all this information on cameras about who's traveling on the roads and sell it off to a highest bidder. Who knows who that bidder may be working for? Um, But there's got to be something on the government or policy side that can be done about this so there isn't something in the future that could be a lot more serious, I guess. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, the government actually is taking appropriate steps, not just behind that magic wizard's curtain where you're never going to really see what they are doing, but on the front line. So the government is contemplating changing uh, the laws regarding uh, money. Uh, register if you're an agent and uh, c- control the information on who gives money to whom. We've, we've seen allegations of political interference indirectly by China. But here's the thing. You can't blame Beijing if they're following our own rules. They've done nothing wrong because we haven't made the rules. Until rules are made, my concern goes out to the families. The families here in Canada with mainland connections. So the scenarios, nightmarish, are you're pulling out of your local store, you're in traffic, and you happen to be behind four cars that just left a human rights demonstration, and now you're tagged on camera. Or you're walking, uh, and you're enveloped by a crowd protesting something that happened in China, or trying to further human rights in Hong Kong, tag, you're it. And it's not you. The extended finger of Beijing doesn't rush across the Pacific and tap you on the shoulder right away. They'll go for your family in China, because now the family is tainted. Remember, China today has a point system where they control using biometrics, watch where you go, who you talk with, what you do, to give you a magic number, a social good number. So what you do during the day is monitored and you're tagged if you're a good citizen, a bad citizen. That can be extended to a Canadian connection. So, you know, it's a brave new world. We have to live up to the fact that it's a technocratic, non-democratic Uh, surveillance society of the first order, and we have to guard against extending that into Canada. Like I say, we can't make it easy for these guys. So protect the families, use your head, walk three blocks away if there's a demo against China, and similarly, just 
don't park in that parking lot where they're having, you know, uh, uh, please, uh, no more involuntary kidney donation programs. We're against that. And there you go. So protect the families. The government's on the right path. Um, We have to change the rules, not so much by making things illegal or increasing government waste and cost, but by trying to centralize intake on these kinds of activities. Have one spot. If it, if it has to be an MP's office where people can go knowing they'll be safe, protected, and their information guarded, uh, because the best evidence is information from the front lines, and with that best evidence, we can figure out the rules. But until rules come out, you just go after the low-hanging fruit and the red meat, like that Richmond surveillance system, uh, that's what sends a signal. What if about the expats, that, uh, the people that have yeah. come and lived here? Do they really understand some of the risks, uh, especially I'm thinking of children, of yeah. uh, maybe families uh, back in China? Yeah, adolescent children here may not carry the same mm, weight in terms of thinking straight uh, on what they're doing in their schools and how it may affect their cousins in China. Uh, it's it's all about common sense at this point. Knowing that uh, China has an interest in surveying our uh, uh, on Canadian soil, uh, our Canadians and permanent residents or others from China here should be enough to put you on guard. It's sad you may have to think like we did uh, during COVID. Wait a minute, here's a layer of thinking we've never had to encounter before. COVID. The same thing for Beijing surveillance. You just have to use your head and do the right thing and don't step into it blindly. Well, know maybe shows like this will help out. Richard, you're a fascinating guest. Uh, thanks for really uh, you know, highlighting some very interesting and, uh, dare I say, frightening things here. <laughs> oh, always a pleasure. Keep okay. it up. Okay. Remember yesterday, we had that big news conference at 11.30 in the morning. Dr. Bonnie Henry and Dr. Ballum and Adrian Dix, of course, as health minister there. One of the big takebacks from that was vaccination. And this word that 20% of uh, elementary school uh, age kids uh, are vaccinated. So 80% aren't. And that's fine. That was addressing one side of some of the concerns that we've been hearing about uh, over the past few weeks. But there is more. We have been hearing about huge delays and overcrowding at BC Children's Hospital. One of those picking up on some of this is Sonia Furstenau, leader of the BC Greens. And one of the quotes that she had coming out of her own news conference yesterday was, and I'm reading this as a quote, It is not clear what this government's goals are when it comes to addressing the situation in children's hospitals right now. In the past, ensuring hospitals were not overwhelmed was clearly a stated objective, but currently there is no direction about what we are trying to achieve. Well, Sonia Furstenau is uh, joining us now. Thank you so much for spending time with us this afternoon. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much. You know, this is, uh, as a parent, I'm speaking, not as Mm -hmm. uh, Bruce, uh, a guest talk show host, but as a parent, uh, I know how frustrating it must be for other parents when they face the possibility of nine nine hour or more delays 
going into Children's Hospital or even seeing a family doctor for that matter right now. Um, It's not happening. You heard the news conference yesterday, and aside from your own politics, what was your take just as a person? Yeah, and I'm going to speak as a parent too, Bruce, because I think this is what we have to be considering, is what is the experience for children and for parents right now when they are trying to get health care in this province, especially when it's urgent health care at a hospital. On Saturday morning, uh, the BC Children's Hospital invoked a code orange, meaning that there weren't enough resources to deal with the, the volume of patients. It only lasted for a short time, but at the same time, it was a nine or 10 hour wait uh, posted on the website for how long it would take to, to be seen if you brought your child into Children's Hospital. I went through a nightmare this summer with my own daughter where she needed uh, her appendix removed and it was 29 hours in two ERs in uh, Edmonton before she got the surgery that she needed to essentially protect her life. And I can tell you that there is no worse nightmare than being a parent with a child who is in medical distress, who's in agony, who needs medical attention and you can't get it because the system is overwhelmed. We are hearing, I am hearing from doctors, from nurses, and from parents about the conditions and how distressing this is for them. And what was really honestly quite shocking yesterday about the the press conference with Adrian Dix and, and Dr. Bunny Henry was a lack of a sense of urgency around the situation, a lack of understanding really conveyed or empathy for parents who are spending hours and hours in ERs, parents whose children's uh, operations have been cancelled, parents who are deeply worried about their very sick kids and can't get the care they need. The well, that's uh, well put. The the thing that caught me by surprise was uh, comparing this to other years before COVID and saying and uh, repeating in the uh, in the news conference that this is kind of to be expected about the norm. Um, it's not the norm. I'm not that naive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never had these kind of delays. And yes, flus have been around. I understand that. Um, but just saying that, oh, this one came a little bit earlier, and that's why we're seeing this, that's not good enough, is it? No, and I think that this is really important, is that in, in a time like this, what people don't need is to be told what you're experiencing as reality isn't, isn't actually real. We don't need uh, people who are in decision-making positions to be diminishing the experiences that people are having. And when we heard yesterday in the news conference about the absolutely devastating and horrifying tragedy of children dying in this province from flu right now, to me, that is a circumstance that requires action beyond just telling parents the same thing that they've been told for weeks now, as conditions get worse, get vaccinated. Yes, ideally, everybody should be getting vaccinated against the flu right now. But the reality is there's only 10 to 15 percent of kids right now who are vaccinated. And so while we have conditions where children are not able to get the care they need in overcrowded and overburdened emergency rooms and children's wards, what can we do together, collectively, all of us, 
to help protect those children. And I think as a society, that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What do we do? Well, and this is the other one as looking for some sort of solutions. I love solutions. And uh, mm-hmm. it's it's easy for me to sit back and just go on the radio and say, these are the problems, these are the problems. But uh, here is the big solution I, he- I heard coming out of the news conference. But I question this. Um, the big One of the big solutions to get around this 20% vaccination rate, which is embarrassingly low, is to have this vaccination palooza or some other silly name that they had for it, but mm-hmm. have this coming up on December 9th. December 5th was yesterday. December 6th is today. One hour after announcing this vaccination uh, campaign and push to get this done, I was talking with a family doctor, a family physician, who said, what? I've never heard of this. Mm-hmm. And these are the systems that aren't working. Mm-hmm. Um What's going on here? What are you hearing? Yeah. Well, I've, I've uh, certainly heard frustration from people who have been trying to get flu vaccines for their, for their little ones and haven't been able to, either being told, uh, you know, you have to go through this registration process. Uh, it's, it's sometimes complicated. If you've already had your COVID vaccine, for example, you, you can't get back in there to register for flu. I mean, it's been made so much more complicated than it used to be, which was your family doctor or a pharmacy, you walk in and you can get a flu vaccine. And in the circumstances we are in with the kind of emergencies we're seeing, this should be made as simple as possible. Questions were put to, Uh, the minister and Dr. Henry about making vaccines available at schools, uh, making them more readily available, you know, so that people can can have access to them easily. And we've seen this year this change in how vaccines are rolled out and it's made things more complicated. It's, It's put these, you know, barriers in front of people just being able to easily access these vaccines. That's what we should be aiming for. And then in addition to that, when we see this level of illness amongst children and we see the, the severity of that illness, let's put on masks. Let's say, you know what, we can put on masks for a couple of weeks while this, the pressure comes off the hospitals. Let's collectively make this a safer place for children to be because, of course, none of us want to see children in these kind of dangerous and life-threatening situations. And putting on a mask is such an easy way to diminish the amount of, of flu, of COVID, of colds, all of these viruses that are circulating right now, which didn't circulate in this kind of number when we were all wearing masks a year ago. Yeah, sure it is. And it's uh, it's an obvious one. But as you say that, I guarantee you right now, there are people listening that said, no way, we're not going back to masks. And some of that feeling has not been squelched or put aside effectively by those mm-hmm. who should be doing that. The yeah. messaging around masks was terrible, I think. Yeah. I, you know, I found a press release that we put out on January 24th, 2022, where we called on the BC government to treat COVID like an airborne virus, to educate people about airborne viruses, to recognize that we have so much potential to address this by improving indoor ventilation, air filtration, air quality measuring, uh, to, to have people understand what is a high-risk environment. That's where you put on a mask. What are low-risk environments? That's where you, you don't need the mask. We should be treating this 
from a public health perspective, starting with education, providing tools to people, having people understand the benefits of a, of a tool like wearing a mask. You think back to the 1990s, 80s and 90s, when the AIDS crisis was growing and the messaging wasn't, you know, wear a condom if you feel like it. The, the messaging was, this is how you protect yourself and others in a global pandemic. And I think that we have to get back to that question of, what do we owe each other? How do we take care of each other? Putting on a mask is so much less of an effort than having to take a child to a hospital who can't breathe, who has a fever of over 40 degrees, who is dehydrated, whose life is at risk. And, and I think we have to really ask ourselves, like, why are we not recognizing what we can do collectively to protect children right now? That is what I'm asking. You know, skyrocketing food prices, they are expected to continue right into 2023. And we are told not to expect much relief, if any, until the summer. The grocery industry has put the blame squarely on several factors. In fact, international instability with Ukraine, high gas prices and continuing supply chain issues. But is that the entire story Is there, in fact, some price gouging taking place at the retail level? Well, those questions are now before a federal committee, which is poised to ask some serious questions to those grocery CEOs. Alistair McGregor is the NDP MP for Cowichan, Malahat, Langford, and is on that committee. I asked him about those concerns. Yeah, we have noticed for quite some time that the cost of food has been skyrocketing and it seems to be rising at a pace that is exceeding the general rate of inflation. I think all parliamentarians of every political stripe are really starting to hear some incredibly negative feedback from their constituents on just how unaffordable food is, on the difficult choices it's forcing families to make. And uh, as a result of that, uh, our committee was chosen, the Standing Committee on Agriculture and Agri-Food was chosen, not only because of its um, mandate with respect to food, but uh, it was chosen because I brought forward the motion uh, to study this issue because of that feedback that I've been hearing from people. And uh, I was very pleasantly, um, I wouldn't say surprised, but I was very pleased to see that all of my colleagues around the table I supported that motion for study with a unanimous vote, and it was also backed up uh, by a unanimous vote a few days later uh, in the House of Commons as a whole. You've probably heard similar stories, but we got an email into the newsroom here, and the email said uh, that uh, the person was shocked that Clamato juice had gone up by $2 a litre and contacted the company behind the Clamato juice, and they said, no way is it our issue we have never raised the price to, as a wholesaler, uh, above a dollar. I guess you're hearing similar stories to that, aren't you? Uh, Absolutely. Um, There are so many questions swirling around uh, the price markups that are happening in the retail sector. And, you know, our Canadian grocery market is dominated, uh, 80% of it is dominated by just three companies, uh, Loblaw, Metro and Empire, and all of their subsidiaries. So there are huge questions, and it's not only coming from consumers who are wondering at the crazy price increases they're seeing on the store shelves. If you look on the other end of the spectrum, we've also heard from the processing side 
and from farmers who um, are are very wary of what they perceive, perceive to be unfair business practices. And that's why so many of those groups for several years now have been calling for a grocery code of conduct because they see the hidden fees that are associated with getting their products on the shelves. So uh, there is a huge trust deficit with the Canadian public uh, right now with the grocery sector. And I think that's a big reason why you're seeing parliamentarians take this issue so seriously. It just doesn't seem to make much sense that the large grocery giants would be doing this. You have new uh, competition from food apps, uh, for delivery systems from small producers. You certainly have more farmers markets and that type of thing emerging. There are alternatives out there. Why would it be in their interest, do you think, to even go ahead and price gouge? Well, I, I, you know, I can't answer that question directly because I don't sit on those boards. All I can look at is the evidence before me, and uh, that evidence is borne out by the prices that we see on the store shelves. Uh, we also know that over the last several years, their profit margins, their net profits, uh, have been increasing steadily, and, and many of them are doing quite well right now. In fact, if you compare their profit margins from the pre-pandemic levels, uh, you know, say the base year of 2019, to what they're making now, they are all doing very well. And that is in spite of all of the cost pressures related to the pandemic, all the supply chain squeezes and everything. Um, I think what this committee uh, really wants to get down to is to to hear not only from representatives of the grocery chains, but also from economists who are special specialists in the sector, from the processors and from consumer groups. And uh, I think ultimately what we also need to address is whether the Competition Bureau of Canada has enough resources to do its job effectively so that people can have trust in the sector. We need to have an effective federal watchdog on this. The CEOs, what would be the first question you're asking? Well, yesterday we did have a few representatives. Unfortunately, it wasn't the CEOs. We're still hoping to have a, um, you know, an appearance by uh, Mr. Galen Weston of Loblaws. But ultimately, it's, uh, it, many of my questions have been themed on that trust sector because um, many of their stores have been subject to competition bureau investigations. Uh, they have reported substantial profits. People who shop at their stores see the massive price increases. We see uh, the fact that the processing side, the farming side, have had their own issues, which is why they're pursuing a, um, you know, a grocery code of conduct. So, so my questions have really been themed on, the, on trust. And really, uh, how, how is this grocery sector going to proactively rebuild the trust that so many people have lost in it and are they going to do it effectively before Parliament steps in and, and does it for them through other means? When it comes to trust, I know uh, the usual arguments that I hear from the grocery sector, uh, the reason for the price increases while geopolitical events. Uh, well, that was last year. This is this year. That's nothing new. And in fact, we heard that some of the supply chain issues should have been resolved. Then we're on to extreme weather. Well, we have winter weather this year, not extreme like we had last year, at least not on the West Coast. And then we get things like soaring energy costs. We're not seeing them soar to any unusual uh, level at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, everyone who, who uh, runs a business has been affected in some way by the supply chain issues. It's really left no facet of Canadian society untouched. And of course, yes, the geopolitical tensions that out there are, are a big uh, part of it. We have seen the, the skyrocketing energy prices, which have been related to that. 
these are all issues, and I'm not saying they don't have some sort of an effect, but I, but I am saying that if, if, despite all of that, the grocery sector still has managed to increase its, its net profit substantially. And, and so, again, if you combine that with the complaints that we've seen, the ongoing consumer um, protection uh, investigations, it, it definitely is an issue of trust. And I think you'll see that theme uh, as a pervasive element through this committee study. Parliamentary committees can only do so much, but uh, what are the powers and what influence do you think you can ultimately have if it is found that, uh, well, things are not as they are said to be? Well, the great thing about a parliamentary committee is it is a public forum. So it, it's, a, it's a way of uh, bringing forward witnesses to explain themselves when there's a very real issue of concern in the public mind. Uh, you know, we have the ability to to put them on the spot to really focus that political and public pressure that is building at this moment in time. And carrying on, once we have concluded our witness testimony, uh, we also are going to be writing a report on this issue and issuing some very clear recommendations to the government. And again, those will all be public and those will all be a, a focal point that people can focus their efforts on to get the federal government to to respond accordingly to the very real concerns that are out there. Alistair McGregor, uh, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. I appreciate your interest, so thank you so much. You know, there is new research out from the BC Doctors of Optometry, and it finds that three-quarters of us, 75%, have engaged in unhealthy eye habits over the past year. Unhealthy eye habits. Yep, British Columbians, as we get ready to celebrate with friends and family over the holidays, the doctors are wanting us in the public to shake some of these unhealthy practices. What are they? Well, let's get to the bottom of this. Dr. Mahania Madan is with the BC Doctors of Optometry. She's the president of the organization. Good afternoon, doctor. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thank you so much for having me on the show, Bruce. Well, thanks for being here too, because I I think myself, I must have unhealthy eye habits. And when I first started to read through this, I thought 75%, yep, that's going to be me. And and then I thought, uh, okay, I know what my habits are. But uh, some of the ones that you outline here are things I would never think of. And I'm going to start with this one. 65% rubbing our eyes. Yes, that's right. So that's what our survey results found, that Canadians are, uh, that's an unhealthy habit for sure. Rubbing your eyes can actually cause micro scratches of your cornea, which can lead to eye infection. So that is not a good habit. Although it feels really good to scratch your eyes, um, that is not a good thing to do. But we have eyelids. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, No, uh, in fact, when we rub our eyes uh, in a way, you can uh, still cause micro scratches to the eye. I find that one uh, surprising, but uh, I thought, okay, yep, that is uh, one of the ones uh, definitely for sure. And, uh, you know, it does feel good and i think we do that uh, even as a matter of expression oh i'm tired i just yawned i'm going to rub my eyes but it's a good habit to drop then uh and not going to be an easy one for many of us who have been doing it our whole lives 
Absolutely. And, you know, oftentimes our, our hands are not really all that clean. So now we're introducing microorganisms to the surface of our eye and around our eyelids, which are all also very important part of the health system of the eye. And so rubbing chronically can lead to eye infections and scratches onto your eye and other eye problems as well, which can even cause thinning of the cornea and change your prescription over time. Well, that's amazing. Now, here's another one, and I've heard this before, and this doesn't apply to all of us, but those who wear makeup, um, well, 13% uh, admit that they wear old makeup, and, um, and some of them keep it on at night. That's not good, is it? No, that's also a problem that uh, we are seeing, right? So wearing eye makeup, I mean, of course, lots of ladies love to do that, uh, myself included, but taking your makeup off at night is really important. When we sleep with a makeup on, our, our eyelids are prone to getting infected. We can actually get a condition called blepharitis, which is an inflammation and infection of your eyelashes. It can cause formation of styes, and people can actually lose eyelashes over time, and that's, that's not a really good look. So it's really important, especially as we go into holiday season and if we're going out and interacting with people, that we do come home and uh, make sure that we, uh, you know, take a, a proper way of taking our eye makeup off. Now, those are some of the ones that I was surprised by, but uh, the one that I thought for sure would be in here, and maybe uh, maybe it is uh, part of it, is um, the screen time, you know, looking into screens. Uh, is that an issue still, or is it uh, more of a old wives' tale? No, absolutely. And, you know, of course, now uh, post-pandemic, during pandemic, I think we've noticed a huge increase in screen time use, right? And so the uh, the survey that BC Doctors of Optometry conducted showed that Canadians are using computers for long periods of time without any breaks. And this can actually cause a lot of fatigue on your visual system. It can actually even cause dry eyes. Because when we stare at a screen for a long period of time, we're actually reducing our blink rate by about 50%. Now, blinking is actually very essential for our eyes. So imagine reducing something that's very essential by 50%. And that can have detrimental effects on, on our eyesight. You know, it can cause, again, dry eyes, fatigue, and even change in prescription. So it is really important that during this holiday season and looking into 2023, that we start to be a bit more mindful of our eye health, right? Take breaks on your screens. Uh, go ahead and visit your doctor optometry um, you know for a comprehensive eye exam many British Columbians also find that their eyesight is probably their most prized sense right so to maintain that prized sense uh, you know get a comprehensive eye exam that can look into these problems and help uh, treat them and triage them talking with Dr. Mani Amadan about uh, some of the issues related to our eyes and taking better care of them she is a president of the BC Doctors of Optometry. Doctor, uh, one of the things that uh, comes with uh, screen time is, for many of us, it's a reality. I know people say, take a break, take a break, don't stare at it too long. But um, I have to. Um, and I, I wonder if, for those that are going to be in front of a screen, if there are some tips to kind of mitigate some of that damage or kind of uh, make it a little bit safer. 
Absolutely. And, and Bruce, you nailed it. I mean, this is, this is the reality of the world that we're living in. It's probably the number one question we get asked as an eye doctor as well. So, yeah, there are some things to help mitigate the risk. I think, uh, you know, one of the things is to take breaks. I mean, and these breaks don't have to be long, but just allowing your eyes to rest every half hour, look, you know, far away for 20 seconds or, you know, or 30 seconds and blink you know, I'm always reminding my patients to blink a little bit more often when they are uh, sitting on their on their screens. Get up, stretch. All of these things are going to help give our eyes a bit of a break uh, from the screens. Um, and, and then, of course, stay hydrated while we are working on the screens. And then if there are any eye drops that are recommended by your doctor of optometry, you can also use that to help lubricate your eyes because dry eye can be uh, something that we're noticing, uh, you know, patients are complaining of when they're on the screens a lot. Now, there are some over-the-counter eye drops and those type of things. Uh, You mentioned, obviously, going and talking to your uh, eye doctor about it. But uh, are there some warnings for those of us who may be inclined to just go in and pick some up? Yeah, you know, that's probably not a great idea. There are so many lubricating drops uh, on the -the over-the-counter, and they're all specific for one thing or rather. So I think your doctor of optometry can help navigate that for you. And sometimes an over-the-counter lubricating drop may not be enough, right? So we want to get to the root of the problem. Uh, And so visiting your doctor and kind of figuring out what level of concern you have, what kind of symptoms you're having, and using that to navigate a proper treatment plan, I think is really important. Anything else we should know that we haven't talked about uh, in terms of eyes that uh, is something that you find that many patients don't know about at all? Yeah, I think I also want to remind, uh, you know, British Columbia that there is coverage through MSP for seniors and children for them to visit a doctor of optometry. And then also patients that are requiring medical eye exams for such as diabetes or glaucoma or dry eyes, that there is also coverage through MSP for those type of eye exams. Dr. Mania Madan, thank you so much for uh, spending time and letting us know that uh, maybe it's time to change some habits. Uh, Just before you go very quickly, if people want information, do you have a website? Absolutely. It's BC Doctors of Optometry, www.bcdo.com. And find the tips there. Thank you so much. Thank you again. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.